We're going to look for two weeks at this passage. I'm going to read in a few moments. We're going to look at Elijah this week and we're going to look at the widow of Zarephath next week. But there is a context. It's not all going to be about giving, but there is a context that I want to be very, very aware of. It's, not, it's going to be about faith. It's going to be about God's provision and uh, all sorts of things. But I do want to set a context, particularly if you're a visitor, but even for our own people, a reminder. We have a major gift day in February, on the 7th and 14th of February. I'm really praying that this will be the last of the NBC Project gift days. There'll be gift days in future, but I really pray this is the end. Now, I want to encourage you and stir you about this gift day. This will be the conclusion of over 12 years of buying and establishing this building in the manner in which it now is, up and running, fully refurbished, all sorts of remedial work done on the floor and the roof and goodness knows what else. The actual cost of what we've done in here over those years, from when you first purchased it long before my time, is £3,576,111. That's what God has provided in the last 12 or so years. £3,576,111. Now that's good, isn't it? That is good. That's God's provision. It happens to be a fact that we have not once gone to a bank. There's no bank loans involved in the paying of all of that. It's all been without interest paid anywhere. We are dealing with some interest-free loans in this last part of the process. But actually, all the way through, there has been no dependence on the bank, which I think, personally, is remarkable. And I can commend you for your faith, because I came into the middle of this rather than being here at the beginning. And it is a remarkable story. Now, we have £70,000 to pay off in interest-free loans. And I really am asking God, and I'm encouraging you, to prepare yourselves to deal with that in one shot in February. It would be a great pity to dribble on any further. I think we have got a little weary with our gift days. We've been doing them for a long time. We've deliberately left it as near, I think it's pretty well a year since the last one. So there is a definite strategy in our thinking that we understand there's a sort of weariness and a routineness, I guess, that's crept in. We've stopped for a little while. But we're now at a quite a key moment. We want to pay off all of this. We also want to set it in a position that when Steve, for example, takes over leadership in June, the whole thing is debt-free. It's finished and completed. The line is drawn underneath it. There is nothing more to do. NBC bought and established, paid for, fini. Can you believe for that? Please join us in a a faith task. £70,000 is doable, but it does require sacrifice, and it requires faith. And I'm going to be talking about those things that will be woven into... Some of the things I'm saying over the next two weeks. It's not all about giving at all, but it will be woven in. Because I want us to believe God to clear that debt. Now, actually, I want to have a spirit of celebration and thanksgiving about the next gift day. Please, musicians, note for the worship leaders on those days. Because we're celebrating what God's done over the last 12 years. And in a way, the completion of this to get 70 or more... 70,000 or more, would be a testimony of thanksgiving and celebration as well. 
It's part of saying, God, thank you, we honour you. In a way, for some of us, it's like completing of something. Some of you have been with it, been running with it for, for the full length. Others, like myself, seven, eight years now. But we want to sort of do it well and end, go right through the tape with joy, don't we? Let's really believe for that and really expect God to help us and bless us. And we need to all be involved in doing it in, and in asking God for what we should give and, and perhaps going a little bit beyond the routine. I want to talk about that probably over in, a, in both weeks, maybe a bit more next week. And going beyond just the predictable. Let's have a faith adventure on this one together. To be honest, I would like to clear more than 70,000. I'd like to have a little more to give away, to be able to uh, be generous on every occasion, as it says in 2 Corinthians. Ideally, I'd like to see about 80,000 pounds in. I'd like to see us clear completely any last dots. I think the accuracy is pretty good. It's about 70,000 we owe, but I don't want us to find we've got 65 and we're still squeezing a bit. Let's go right beyond the finishing tape. When they run a good race, they don't stop the moment they touch the tape, do they? They sort of run on for a good few yards. I'd like us to see about 80,000. That would be my prayer target. About 80,000 pounds from that gift day. And I think that would be a good end to the whole thing with celebration, thanksgiving and a bit of generosity to others out of it. Amen? Okay, let's believe for that. Now, I want to read for, uh, to you these verses, uh, and we'll be with this passage for two weeks. 1 Kings 17, verse 1. Now, Elijah the Tishbite from Tishbe in Gilead said to Ahab, As the Lord, the God of Israel, lives, whom I serve, there will be neither dew nor rain in the next few years except at my word. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, Leave here, Turn eastward and hide in the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook, and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. So he did what the Lord had told him. He went to the Kerith Ravine, east of the Jordan, and stayed there. The ravens brought him bread and meat in the morning and bread and meat in the evening, and he drank from the brook. Sometime later, the brook dried up because there had been no rain in the land. Then the word of the Lord came to him, go at once to Zarephath of Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in the place, that place, to supply you with food. So he went to Zarephath, and when he came to the town gate, a widow was there gathering sticks. He called to her and asked, would you bring me a little water in a jar so I may have a drink? As she was going to get it, he called, and bring me, please, a piece of bread. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid, go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me from what you have and bring it to me and then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on the land. So she went away and did as Elijah had told her. So there was food every day for Elijah and for the woman and her family. For the jar of flour was not used up and the jug of oil did not run dry in keeping with the word of the Lord spoken by Elijah. Now, I want to talk this morning about Elijah, the man of faith. 
and I want us to learn. It's to be rooted right in practicalities for us. We're told in the New Testament, in James 5, that Elijah was a man just like us. He was very similar to us. Actually, bits of the story, some of it coming later, will illustrate that only too well. He got depressed, for example. He didn't always feel on top of things at all. And yet this man played a key role in bringing his nation back to God, in seeing what was in effect a revival in his time. What was it about Elijah that was, humanly speaking, successful? What's the the, the human side? Obviously, there's a sovereignty of God. We understand these things. But there's a human response in Elijah that's key. And it's not difficult to find. And actually, what you see in Elijah is within the reach of each one of us. Elijah is not just Superman. There's something about him that is human And the resources he has are available to all of us because they're things like this. Faith. He was a man of faith, but he grew in faith. We're going to talk about that a lot this morning. That's the main thing I want to think about. He was also a man of prayer. He prayed. That's the big point made in James. We'll see those verses in a moment. And I guess you could say he was a man of obedience to God's word. That is a very important part of Elijah's story. He was prepared to speak God's word out. So he was a proclaimer of God's word. And those are some of the things that you notice about Elijah. They're not really more profound than that. And we're not looking at this is Superman. We could never be anywhere near it. We're encouraged in the New Testament to see him as a model that we could copy or follow. I want to look at three things this morning. And the first one is faith and obedience. I don't know if you've got the PowerPoints. Uh, probably, yeah, you have. Thank you. I want to look at faith and obedience. Now, Elijah's faith-filled obedience to God's word was the key to his dynamic prayer life. That comes clear when you read James. In James, it says this, James 5 and verse 16, I think it's going to go up on the moment on the screen, 16 onwards, it says, The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. It did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed and the heavens gave rain and the earth produced its crops. Now, we looked at that when we were talking about prayer. But he's an example that the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. That's why he's quoted in James in the New Testament. You see, Elijah shows us this important point. And it's about obedience linked with faith. God listens to people who listen to God. I mean, in a way, that is the key thing to understand from Elijah. That when you take God seriously, he takes you seriously. Now, Jesus said something along those lines when he was teaching about prayer in John 15 and verse 7. He said this, If you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be given you. There is a key in Elijah's life that is profound and yet it's simple. He actually obeyed God. He got hold of God's word and when God said do something, he did it. And we saw that even in what we've just read and we'll look at it in a moment again. But essentially that was his lifestyle. He trusted God and he obeyed God. And so he had an increasing fellowship with God and he knew more and more how to pray in tune with God And he saw the power of God. 
So I don't think the things he did were remotely random, for example. We saw before that when he prayed for no rain, that was rooted in his understanding of Deuteronomy and what God had said about a nation that turned its back on God and went for idols. And when we get to the Mount Carmel, which are, you know, will be later, I think Steve's preaching on that, I don't think that was a random thing. I don't think he thought that was a bright idea. Something came to him out of his walk with God. The exhortation for all of us is that is within our grasp to be people who obey God's word, who really try to listen to God. And when we listen to God, there can be an expectation that he will listen to us. Now, you might actually feel that it, we often do when we read the Bible, that it's OK for them. I certainly can feel that. I think, well, it was all right for Elijah. You know, he saw these things and this thing. And, but actually... What God was asking Elijah to do was mostly very unusual and very uncomfortable for Elijah himself. Two illustrations in this story are very important. First one is in 1 Kings 17 verse 2 to 4. Here it is. Then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, leave here, turn eastward, hide in the Kerith ravine east of the Jordan. You will drink from the brook and I have ordered the ravens to feed you there. Now, actually, obeying that word was challenging for Elijah. God told him to go to what was a very lonely place. The Kerith Ravine was uh, isolated. He was put in a place of obscurity and loneliness, and it was very humbling just to be sitting in this little deep ravine, probably in the shadows a lot of the time, which might have been nice and cool in that hot country, but it was quite isolated. It wasn't attractive. But it gets worse. God says, I've ordered the ravens to feed you. Now, even we can understand that's not totally good news. I mean, I would want to cook pretty thoroughly what ravens brought me. I don't know about you. And I would think, yeah, that will need a good boiling, frying, cooking, get the temperature up, please. But you can add a dimension that would have been extraordinary for him. Here's a verse in Leviticus. He was a man of God. He knew his Deuteronomy and Leviticus. He knew his Pentateuch. He knew the Moses books. Here it is. These are the birds you are to detest. And you're not to eat them because they're detestable. The eagle, the vulture, the black vulture, the red kite, and any kind of black kite, and any kind of raven. And so the list goes on. To the devout man of God, ravens were detestable. That doesn't mean they're horrible. I love birds. I like watching birds. And I don't think that meant they thought they were horrible in a way that we... That it meant they were unclean. They're unclean. You don't eat them and you don't touch them really. Because unclean things make you unclean. And so there's a real problem. I'm going to be fed by ravens. Couldn't it be pigeons or doves? Something nice and clean, Lord. Or couldn't it be something else? I don't know. Why ravens? But it was ravens. That's what God said. And it would have been challenging to him. Look at the next one. 1 Kings 17, verses 8 and 9. Then the word of the Lord came to him. Go at once to Zarephath in Sidon and stay there. I have commanded a widow in that place to supply you with food. Again, we read it. Fine. Actually, this is very challenging. Zarephath was perhaps nearly 100 miles away. It's 80 to 100 miles Way to the north. Worse still, it was in Sidon. Do you know who ruled Sidon? Ethbal. Who's Ethbal? Jezebel's dad. So he's being sent 
to the territory ruled by Jezebel's dad, Ethbal. And then he's going to be fed by a widow. Okay? Well, first of all, she is apparently a citizen of Ethbal's kingdom, and she's probably at the very bottom of the pile, socially at the bottom of the pile. A widow, a Sidonian widow, that is not particularly good news. That's only one notch better than the ravens to someone like Elijah, I would imagine. It's not about racism or sexism or birdism. It's just about a a man of God having to cope with the challenges of what God says to him. This is how I'm going to provide for you. But although these words were unusual and the consequences were uncomfortable, Elijah obeyed them. Now, here's the challenge for you and me. God's word makes unusual, uncomfortable demands on you, doesn't it? Well, it does. Perhaps you don't take it as seriously as you should, because it does. Let me give you two or three comparatively easy ones. Love your enemies, not easy to do. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That is the word of God to you. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Here's one a little relevant. Give and it will be given to you. Good measure pressed down and running over. Give first. Give the first fruits. Give from the top, not the bottom. And there's loads of scriptures you would know that challenge that's how a Christians to live. But we could be quoting stuff about sexual morality, about marriage, about the need for uh, 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 sexual purity, about language, about how we don't lie, we don't cheat, about how we act out of love, how we honour others and lay our lives down for others. There are masses of things that the Bible says to us before we get to immediate words, which sometimes are challenging and they're difficult and they're uncomfortable to put into practice in real life. Now, are we going to be people who always rationalise these things away and say, oh, but, you know, 21st century, or well, God understands I need this, or God, you know, knows what it's like to be tempted, or whatever. Are we going to rationalise it away, or are we going to respond like Elijah? Or even respond like we see Peter doing in the New Testament. There was an occasion in Luke 5 when Jesus said to Peter, who's a fisherman and knows his work, go out and put the nets down again. And it says this, when Jesus said let down the nets, Peter said this, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. Listen to this, but because you say so, I'll let down the nets. That is an attitude. Lord, I believe that to stay morally pure in areas like this sexuality, I believe to, 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 to honour you with my wealth, I believe to pray for those who persecute me and love my enemies, I believe this is the way to behave. Because you said so, I will, in faith, obey your word. That is how the man and woman of God are to live. And when people do that, they begin to see God break through in ways that they don't always otherwise. We also begin to grow as Christians. Faith is like muscle. It is like muscle. It grows. It's like an organic thing. It grows as you use it. It develops. It's not like rubber bands, that the more you stretch them, the weaker and wobblier they get. That's not what faith's like. Faith is more like muscle. You don't use it, it gets weak and wobbly, as we all know, to our cost. But actually, when you use it, It tones up and it gets stronger. Faith grows. Now, that's the next point I want to talk about. Faith growing. Because 
I don't think Elijah was a mighty man of faith just naturally. I think he came from a backward area. He came from probably a shepherding sort of tribe. I don't think he was just a right on sort of in your face, totally confident, upfront character. And we can't be like that. I think he was a man who grew in faith which he did. I believe we watched some of that process in this passage we've read today. I don't think you get to Mount Carmel without going through Kerith and Zarephath experiences. I don't think Elijah came straight out of nowhere to Mount Carmel. God taught him. He grew in faith through much of what we're looking at was part of the process. He grew in faith. So that when he gets to Mount Carmel in 1 Kings 18, there's a man who's developed his trust in God. I believe that's what we're watching here. Kerith, for example. Deep ravine. Secret, hidden place. Here's the key about Kerith. Elijah is totally dependent on God. There is no other way he's going to get through the Kerith experience. It's slightly different even from the Zarephath one. As you can see, he's got the widow and the family. But here, he is totally isolated. If God doesn't turn up for him, he will die. He will starve. It's a physical experience, but there's got a spiritual metaphor in it. There can be times in our lives when we just seem to be shut in with God. If you haven't experienced them, you will. When it's like a valley... It's like a ravine, which is where... And it's not like you've done anything wrong. Elijah was there because God told him to go there. Elijah went because God said, I'm going to feed you there. Now, Elijah could have said, that is not very nice. Could you feed me here? Or, you know, somewhere more convivial, somewhere with more community, somewhere with a few more people to talk to, somewhere a little bit more friendly. But God said, no, I'm going to feed you there. And you know, that is sometimes our experience. We walk with God, we obey God, and we seem to end up there in a ravine. Now, that is a test of faith. Are we totally focused? It's God alone that matters. Elijah had the most important thing in his life, even in Kerith. He had the Lord God and his relationship with God. That's where he learnt, I think, some of his sensitivity to God. He developed it. Our faith in God must be complete. It's not in just what God does. It's in him himself. But it got sort of worse even there in Kerith because he's sitting by the brook. He's drinking water from it. He's got these horrible, funny, black, ugly ravens bringing him food, but he's got used to that. But then the brook dries up. And you think, isn't that a bit mysterious as well? I mean, these are all a bit metaphorical for us, but have you not, and maybe it's not always metaphorical, have you not found things like that? You think the brook's drying up. Even here, where God's got me, it looks like things are getting drier. That's what happens for Elijah. The brook began to dry up. And you can think, why does God let the brook dry up? Why did the brook dry up for Elijah? Why does it sometimes seem the brook dries up for us? Well, you can see some things, I think, and learn some things, but you can't always understand it. One thing, somebody said, it's not my quote, somebody said this, we must be careful to put our faith in the word and not the water. And actually, 
Elijah had to trust God more than even the brook. (laughs) The brook was his supply. He got very used to it. Now, God had provided it, actually, but he had got to go beyond God's gifts to God himself. Not only was he shut in with God, but he had to think, everything I've got comes from God. And my faith is in God and not what God gives. That is an important, profound thing to get hold of. Here's maybe another thing God was doing. He was, by drying the brook up, he was loosening Elijah's roots to move on. Because Elijah's going to move. And that happens too sometimes. It's not always the answer. You don't immediately rush to move. But sometimes there's a drying that provokes a change. And that seemed to happen here. But underneath it all, I would say, is that fundamental preparedness to trust and obey God. Now here, Elijah does very well. He must have noticed that the brook was drying up. He must have noticed it. And yet he doesn't seem to panic or rush off to find his own solution to the problem. Very, very easy to do that. I know that from my own battles and mental battles. You know, he could have complained, look, the water's nearly gone. God, you know, I need water. It's a hot country. What's going on? Right, I better get out of this ravine while there's still at least a trickle left. Fill my water bottle and get out of here. But that's not what happened. God spoke when the brook dried up, it says. That's, it's sort of like God often is, really, at the last minute. Sometime later, the brook dried up, and then God told him what to do next. And I think sometimes, for us, it's like that. There can be a real temptation to drop out and give up and rush off and find our own solution to problems. When things get a bit tight and difficult, a bit dry, getting worse, it seems, we can prematurely give up and rush off and try and find our own answer. God's watching us. Are you going to hold in until I tell you to move? Are you going to go with my word or just on your thoughts and ideas? Well, Elijah did well. And as the brook dried up, the word came. Now, here's the next battle, because you already hinted at it. That wasn't that easy. You see, Zarephath, as we said, was in Ethbaal's territory. So that's a bit of a challenge for a start. But when he finally meets the widow, I think the answer he got was probably not the one he was hoping for. Certainly didn't inspire too much confidence. When he asks her for food and water, this is her answer. It's going up on the screen. It's verse 12. This is what the widow says. As surely as the Lord your God lives, she replied, I don't have any bread, only a handful of flour in a jar and a little oil in a jug. I'm gathering a few sticks to take home and make a meal for myself and my son that we may eat it and die. Hmm. Sound too encouraging. This is your source of life. For goodness knows how long, God said. And he's found the widow and she seems to be the right one. And we'll perhaps talk a bit more about that next week. But but basically, assuming that he's clear on that, in fact, the story is not that exciting, is it? I've got enough for one meal for my son and myself and then we're going to die. Right. But Elijah's response is magnificent. Look at verses 13 and 14. This is very important, how he responds. Elijah said to her, don't be afraid. Go home and do as you have said. But first make a small cake of bread for me and what you have, uh, from what you have and bring it to me. And then make something for yourself and your son. For this is what the Lord, the God of Israel says. The jar of flour will not be used up. The jug of oil will not run dry until the day the Lord gives rain on 
the land. I think he replies out of great faith. He, first of all, notice, resists unbelief and fear. When you're in a faith battle, one of the big enemies is fear. I think fear and faith almost occupy the same part in our psyche. I don't know if that's true. It's a sort of gut feeling I've got. That fear is like a negative faith. It can really get hold of you, just swamp your thinking, and you're just believing the worst and believing the lies of the devil. But actually, immediately, Elijah picks up her fear, which has certainly got grounds. It's not an unreasonable fear. He picks up her fear, and his first thing is, don't be afraid. So he ministers his faith to this dear woman. And he actually ministers faith, not only to himself, but to her. God's going to clearly feed me and you. (laughs) And if you walk with this, if you work along the way that God's spoken to me, you feed me and you'll find God will feed you. Now he actually therefore resists fear and unbelief and ministers faith. Now we have these battles in our own lives. You have battles where you go to places, you think... I will do things. You think, this is not how it's supposed to be. You said, it was going, you're going to feed me. This woman hasn't got enough food. She's a depressive. She's about to die. She's given up life. She's about to die. She meant it too. So, God, what are you doing? What's this all about? What, that's not how Elijah responds. Somehow, he draws on his own understanding and knowledge of God's word, and he speaks faith to her. He says, don't be afraid. God's going to feed you. And me. Now, you feed me first, and God's going to do something for you. And there's a faith ministry. Now, that is a battle we will all have. There are times when you think, this is just not working like I thought it would. You brought me here. You said this. You said that. Uh, Well, there's a widow here, but she's next to useless. She's got no food. You know, and and, and are you going to actually just get wrapped into the fear, wrapped into the confusion, or are you able to minister faith, not only to yourself, but to others? It's a key thing. You don't have to be <clears throat> a giant Christian to do it. It's how Christians live. It's Christianity we're talking about. It is a walk of faith. The just shall live by their faith. That's how we live. <clears throat> that's how we move. That's how we, that's how we are. We walk by faith. Here's a superb example. I just want to move on to one thing to do with this before we move to the last point, which is slightly shorter. I just want to do one thing. When I was preparing this, I really was blessed reading several books, but one by F.B. Meyer really had a bit that spoke to me, and I just felt I wanted to pass it on. This is F.B. Meyer's point, so I give him credit. He's been dead many years, but he still, though dead, still speaks. And bless me, F.B. Meyer makes this point, and it's the question that I want to ask first to answer. Why did God keep moving Elijah around? Elijah starts off in Gilead, he goes to Jezreel, which is where he meets Ahab, then he goes to Kerith, and then he goes to Zarephath. And that's just in our bit of the story we've read this morning, in effect. So why does God keep moving Elijah around? Now, F.B. Meyer makes a powerful point, but it needs a bit of explanation, and I will briefly give you what he says. In the Middle East, in the Old Testament, when you are making wine, winemaking, the grape juice had to be poured from vessel to vessel many times. Why? Because when it's first made, the grape juice is thick and full of impurities. And actually on its first period of fermentation, you get masses of sediment. 
And if you leave it in the one vessel you've got, or only have one vessel, put it in there and just leave it, all you'll have is sour, cloudy wine. That's what you get. It's not very attractive. So you have to pour it from vessel to vessel. And each time you pour it to another vessel, you leave sediment behind. And it gets clearer and sweeter and more beautiful as wine as you go through this process. So that in the end you have a beautifully clear liquid, which is a delight to drink. But if you don't move it from vessel to vessel, you can leave it as long as you like and it'll end up as a sour, cloudy drink. So in those days, moving a thing from vessel to vessel was an essential part of purifying, producing beautiful wine. And it's a picture that God uses a number of times for people's lives. Now, he doesn't actually say it here with Elijah, but F.B. Meyer makes the point that God is purifying and refining Elijah through the very change process. The very process of being poured from vessel to vessel is essential to make the wonderful wine God wants you to be. The wine of his spirit. The pure, clear, refreshing, sparkling, whatever words you want to use, wine that God wants to produce can only be made if there is some change imposed, if there's more moving from vessel to vessel. Now, in the Old Testament, that is sometimes used negatively as a challenge. And here's one example in Jeremiah. This actually comes from the English Standard Version, which just happened to read better, I felt, ESV. And it says this about Moab. Moab has been at ease from his youth. And has settled on his dregs. He has not been emptied from vessel to vessel. Nor has he gone into exile. So his taste remains in him. And his scent is not changed. I don't think that means a nice scent. Basically he stinks and is sour. Why? Because he's been at ease from his youth. And is settled on his dregs. Actually it's possible to settle... And I think, I'm, I'm stable, I, I'm going to hang on to what I've got. And actually, you're settling on your dregs. And you've become sour. And lost your taste. And God says, I've got to move you around to clean you up. You're okay, the potential's there. But it's getting cloudy, and it's getting filled with sediment. And actually, in Moab's case, he's told, God will send pourers to pour him. Which is... Phew, you know, if you, don't, if you resist God in these things, sometimes God will send pourers to pour you for your own good. It's a powerful prophetic picture, which I just felt I needed to address this morning. I just feel some of us need to realize we can be at ease for ages, at ease on from our youth, settled on our dregs. God says, if you don't allow me to pour you, I'll send pourers to pour you. Because I need to turn you from vessel to vessel. Now, sometimes this is about moving. Physically moving. Many of you here have moved. Sometimes you're not all being sure why. It's been like Elijah. Why can't I be fed here? Well, I've got to go to Kerith. Now I've got to go to Zarephath. Why don't I go to Zarephath? Eth Baal's territory. God says, Zarephath. That's where I've commanded the answer. Zarephath. All right, if we go to Zarephath. Now what's happening? God's purifying Elijah. God's purifying the wine. God's perfecting his walk with him. God's doing something in the man. God's done something in you. And it's not comfortable. Let's not see it. I'm looking as I can see faces in front of me who I know have moved sometimes and found, what is God up to? 
I think it's not always physically moving place. Some of it is like circumstances and jobs and situations. You think, I'm being poured from vessel to vessel here. What's going on? But I tell you, God can and I would say is at work in those situations. And sometimes there's no alternative way to get rid of the sediment. Now, nobody likes it, but that is the sediment going and there's a purer wine coming through. I believe that is for some of you. I think there's a positive and a negative. There's a positive of encouragement. There's a negative of challenge. Don't be like Moab. At ease from your youth, settled on your dregs. I'm not going to shift. Well, you may be getting pretty sour and God may in the end say, I'll send poorest to poor. So we need to go with what God says sometimes, even though it's uncomfortable. Because there's something in the process that does something for our faith and our walk with God. Let's move on finally to God's provision. Because this is we can also see in this uh, Elijah's story. Let me say to you, and I can root some of these things, I do root them in, in personal experience. I, I believe God's done the pouring with me over the years. I believe it's not just to say, I don't want to, uh, it's partly time pressure, because I don't, I don't want to start to hear my own stories, I can be long-winded. You, did I hear someone say you can be long-winded anyway? Um, but I think God has done the pouring with me uh, in lots of ways. I think one was the challenge to go full-time. I think other things have, when I moved from my old church to the little charismatic fellowship, all of those things weren't physically moving town. And I think when we had some challenges in our family life, uh, back when our kids were in their teens, I think God did things that were just pouring me from vessel to vessel, and Marion too. And that God purified us in a process. He said, I do not enjoy this much. I'm finding this quite challenging. I think sometimes it's moving. And I think moving here, though you're very lovely, was a sort of pouring for me. And I think you've got to see God does things. Sometimes they're sovereign and you think, sometimes you know God's telling you clearly to do it. And you think, oh, this is going to be uncomfortable. But God does it. Now, the next point, God's provision. I have seen God's provision over the years. Amazing provisions. I've seen them in all sorts of places, including here. I've seen them here for myself. I've seen them here for us. What about the sale of that car park two or three years ago? I owned the thing for ten years, and suddenly the council say, are you interested? We didn't initiate it. They initiated it. Just when we were about to do this major building project. It's one of the reasons we didn't have to go to the bank. We've got £800,000 from the council. That's a lot of money. I don't know if you noticed at the time. This project cost us 1.7 million, but God provided half of it by the timing of that incredible approach from the council. And I can assure you they would not have done it in the years since because of the credit crunch, the collapse of finances, and even our poor old council had stuff in Iceland, didn't it? It was a real financial crisis. But not when we, when we, when they, they approached us just when we needed it and just when they were on the, you know, the, the bubble, if you like, of finance. Let's spend, spend, spend. So we ended up saying, yes, 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 we'll buy this. You can buy this. But, but we didn't know the future, nor did they. But God did. Now, God can provide in all sorts of miraculous ways. He does here. But you've got to be prepared for surprises and you've got to be humble. And one of the problems we have with miracles and provision is we are proud. You have to be humble. To get food from ravens and to get food from a Sidonian widow, you've got to be humble. 
If you say, I don't like anybody giving to me, I will only receive from some very acceptable source, you're going to have problems. But Elijah wasn't like that. He was able to receive God's provision from the unclean and the unlikely. The unlikely being the widow. Are you able for God to minister to you through unclean and unlikely? I bet some of you are already having trouble with this. You can talk about it over lunch. Well, are you saying, well, I'm I'm not saying any one thing. I'm saying God does stuff like that. And this isn't the only place he does it. If you read your Old Testament, you'll find the Egyptians were spoilt by Israel. They took all their wealth. The Egyptians provide the finances for Israel. In fact, earlier than that, you find Joseph and people like that. You can say Egypt is all often used as a source of supply for God's people. Yet Egypt is a sign of the world and, and, and a pagan rebellious place. God says he will use the wealth of the wicked to supply for the righteous. I can give you at least four references on that, but I'm not going to give you any of them. But God says that in Proverbs and Job and elsewhere. Come to the New Testament. God provides for 5,000 people their lunch with one boy's picnic. That's a bit odd, isn't it? But he seems to need something to work on. That's for next week. He seems to need something to work on. So one little boy gives his picnic, his sandwiches, and 5,000 people are fed. Or what about the tax bill that's met by catching a fish and finding the money in its mouth? I mean, God does some pretty unexpected things. And living with God, walking with God, is an exciting adventure, but please don't get in a box, because God doesn't live in a box. You need to look at creation. I mean, how wacky is creation? Come on, it's the same God. How incredible and complex and beautiful and weird is the world around us, isn't it? Don't you think that? It's wonderful. We think, what on earth is it all like that? Funny little things. You know, and they mate by standing upside down on a, you know, spinning wheel or something. You know, animals I'm talking about, not you. And, you know, you think, I don't know, all sorts of weird things go on. You think, how do they do that? Archer fish catch their food by coming up to the surface and going, and taking account of the distortion of the thing, they hit the fly, the fly falls off, and they eat it. But it's not easy to eat a worm crawling along the bottom, isn't it? How ever did they devise that? Oh, got it. And that's how they, you know, I mean, you think it's just like creative. It's just weird. Now, if that's our God, don't you think sometimes it's going to be a little wacky when he works in your life? And have you ever seen or thought about how Jesus healed people? Mud on the eyes, do this, go and wash, do that. God is a little different. And when he provides for you, you have got to be ready for some amazing coincidences, some incredible timings. You've got to walk in the spirit and find you go and buy this thing just at the right time and it's half price. And you've got to see God can do that. God can make ravens feed you. I'll leave you to work out what ravens are for you. Things you go, ugh. And God says, no, they're a source of supply for you. And I think God will do humble things. You're going to ask I mean, this was tough. You're going to ask a widow who's starving to feed you. How humbling is that? I mean, we can say, oh, it's a good story. Yeah, this this woman, I'm dying. It's my last meal for my son. Okay, well, will you feed me first? I mean, that takes a certain sort of guts, doesn't it? A certain sort of faith. You might say it's very selfish. Well, everybody else would say that. But do you see what I mean? God does some very unusual things when he meets our needs. Let's be ready for him to be God. He's exciting. The Lord is my provider. Don't focus too much on where it comes from in terms of humanly, but, but 
Who provides for you? It's not the where of means, it's the who. The Lord is your provider. I remember God really putting me through that and teaching me that when I left teaching to go full-time in Hastings. And it didn't look a very secure option. And God said, I've always been your provider. It's not whether it's ravens or widows or even just ordinary things like your hard work. I am your provider. We need that big in our minds as we come to a gift day. God is our provider. We need to prove God. You say, I haven't got anything to give. Well, why don't you go on a faith adventure? Go and look at the ravens through the next few weeks. Walk around the park. See if a bird drops a 20-pound note in your hand. I mean, I'm sort of serious. I'm thinking we actually need to learn to move with God. Say, God, I want to give something special in this gift day. God, help me. And then start looking carefully. Don't walk around in a daze. Be ready for the unexpected. Be ready for the raven that croaks its way up to you and gives you a whole bunch of money or something. You know, I I think just be open to God because God is exciting and he's wonderful and he's different. And if we're going to see the miraculous, the extraordinary, we're going to have to be ready for some things that slightly phase us in our lives. Amen?